Welcome to Headset, the podcast that examines the unique mental skill sets of elite athletes, performers, and executives. It is our goal to discover the various skill sets that these individuals use to get their heads set to perform. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 10 of the Headset Podcast. Today, we're continuing our series with Team Wildlife Generation, and we have another incredible athlete with us today, Mr. Sam Boardman. This gentleman is not only a leader on Team Wildlife Generation, but he's a special individual who's going to share with us some of the insights of his life off the bike. And what do I mean? Well, this koala-loving individual has a heart that's bigger than a mountain. Yeah, you know, his abilities to champion our team with heart, soul, and fire on the bike are equally met by his passions for helping people in our society today. Sam's going to share with us some of the insights of his life off the bike and some of his passions for helping other, others in our society. He's going to talk to us a little bit about things that uh, are special to him and show us a little bit more of who he is off the bike. We hope you enjoy our episode 10 with Team Wildlife Generation member Sam Boardman. Okay, everybody. We've got an amazing guy to hear talk and, and share some stories with today. Uh, I've got the movie star stunt double for Orlando Bloom, in my mind, uh, on the podcast today. This man, Rocket, is the star of Team Wildlife Generation, Mr. Sam Boardman. Sam, how are you and your family doing uh, during the lockdown of California right now? Are, are you home and safe? Uh, I- yeah, I think everyone is safe right now. I think we're all uh, doing okay and maintaining our sanity. Um, no one is no one is sick. Um, you know, luckily, my girlfriend Jess and I we we are still able to go outside and ride our bikes uh, from our home in Encinitas, California. And uh, my parents, who live in D.C., they they are safe as well. Jess. Jess's parents who live in Whitefish, Montana, I think are probably the safest out of all of us just because it's the most secluded spot, I think. Uh, And my sister who lives in New York, um, she's probably under the most stringent uh, restrictions right now, but she she and her boyfriend are safe um, and they're still able to go outside for walks. Uh, They take their dog out every day. Um, so everyone's doing okay, uh, on the sanity front, uh, I'm not exactly (laughs) sure, you know, I think everyone puts up a front to some degree or another, just whenever you call somebody and if they're not dying, they say, okay, how are you? Uh, I'm good. Things are good. And you know, you never know, but I think all in all, everyone's, everyone's doing fine. You know, as long as everybody's healthy, I think everybody is, you know, happy for the most part, just dealing with the, the repercussions. Of, of what's going on you know th- this is this is something that uh, is going to be a general uh i won't say general it's going to be a generational um story for the ages this is going to be something that that our generation the people who are on the planet today are going to be able to pass on to their kids down the road of something that happened that and, and unless you're in it you wouldn't believe it unless you were part of it. You just, you wouldn't be able to relate to it. You know, I grew grew up hearing my immigrant parents talk about, you know, the years where uh, it was almost famine. People couldn't, couldn't um, afford food because they grew up during the great depression Mm -hmm. and the effects of the great depression. Mm -hmm. So to, to hear, us talk about something similar, like heaven forbid we get to something like that. Oh God, I hope not. But this is one of those, those life experiential things that we'll be able to pass on. It, it's, it's pretty amazing how this is going to affect people for many years to come. 
Mm-hmm. So, I, so- I, I agree. I mean, I think, yeah, there's, there's been talk that this is a similar moment. I, I don't, not necessarily to the, to the flash degree of say a nine 11, but I think it, people have been skirting that, that analogy here and there where this generation will now understand, you know, where it was at that exact moment when they recognized like things had changed or things had become different. But I, I think the scope of it, given that it, it, it's a global issue is way bigger. So I think you are very right. This is a, 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 a huge moment for, for this generation. But th- this whole scenario also affects you in, in a double whammy way, Sam, which, which I didn't really know this about you till just a little while ago. Um, when you're not on the bike crushing it, you're crushing it in the classroom as a teacher. So, so uh, yeah, <laughs> so you're getting hammered with this in two directions. Um, so what, what age groups do you jump in and teach and, and substitute teach for? Um, so during the off season and a little bit here and there during the in season, um, I'd substitute in the district, uh, surrounding me. So that includes, uh, Encinitas district, Del Mar, Solana beach, just, uh, a bunch of North County, um, San Diego school districts. I substitute um, classes that range between kindergarten to sixth grade. Um, and uh, I have a credential, the substitute teaching credential that's good up until, you know, 12th grade, but all of the gigs that I've uh, taken have just happened to be those age ranges. And I've actually really enjoyed teaching young kids. I didn't think I, I would enjoy it as much, but I think it's a lot of fun, A, because it's a low-pressure academic environment. It's not like I need to answer really difficult questions, say, that a high schooler would be learning in uh, in, a, in a pre-economics class or something like that, or an algebra class or a calculus class. I can't teach calculus, <laughs> but, you know, basic math and uh, reading and writing skills, um, I, I can teach. And so it's, it definitely as a, from a teacher's perspective on the technical side of things, it's definitely easier, but I also just think the young kids are actually really enjoyable. And it's funny, I hadn't been in a classroom since I graduated college, uh, up until my first teaching gig back in December. And that first teaching gig was with um, a kindergarten, first grade combo class. And uh, you kind of forget just how old kindergarten and first graders are. You can, in my head, they, I was expecting these kids to just barely be learning how to read and such. But I mean, these kids have personalities. So, yeah, when, when you're six or seven years old at that age, you, you have your personality starting to form and you have your own opinions on things. And you can have not necessarily like, it's not like I'm talking to these kids about that article in the wall street journal this morning, but I mean, they have their, within their world, they have their own opinions and it's fun to actually talk to them. And I think that's something that I needed reminding of when I got back into the classroom that there, there is a lot more to the younger grades than I think people remember just because you become so far removed from them as you go further and further through your own education. And if that's not something that you're thinking about going into a career in, in terms of elementary grade school education, you forget that. So it's nice to be reminded. And, but like you said, with the pandemic um, and subsequent closures of school districts uh, that's put me out of work as far as the supplemental income that I, I would get from teaching. And it's also just how I fill my time. Like I genuinely liked having the schedule of, you know, I go out and train uh, in the morning and go substitute an afternoon session or something like that, or vice versa. Uh, I kind of liked having that regimentation, but now that it's not there, it's, I'm, finding other ways to fill my time a lot of a lot of you know right I, I train and now a lot of the supplementary exercising that I probably should have been doing anyway during the season but just stretching for hours and rolling and you know a bunch of a bunch of core work yeah 
Well, it, it, it definitely puts a strain on your, your normal routine of what you're going to do. Like it, it's a curveball. It's a curveball. Like you, you might have more definitely. time, but, but the fact that you have more time doesn't necessarily seem necessarily mean that it's going to work as a benefit for you unless you can somehow find a way to, to make it work for the things that you need to get done in your life as well, which is, again, if you're a teacher or you're doing something on the side, um, it's a little bit, it's a little bit difficult uh, from what I'm experiencing with a lot of people in my life. I've had people over the past three to four days tell me how confused they feel because they're too much on the down. Uh, people telling me I can't remember if today is Wednesday or is this Monday. Um, every day feeling like a Sunday. (laughs) Um, these are some of the comments that I'm getting from people on a, on a literally a daily basis. So this, this is where I think that that self-discipline and that regimen, um, really comes to show, uh, how, how strong and firm of a place it has in people's lives. You know, um, Mm -hmm. myself having to tell people, you know, the key to staying focused on, on your day to day with what we're dealing with really rests in not getting away from your daily routine. So it's Mm -hmm. getting up at whatever it may be, six o'clock, seven o'clock in the morning. It's have that shower. It's make that cup of coffee. It's let's let's go to do this <laughs> let's not sit back and ponder mm-hmm. too much and, and and let's do the do right Let, let's not get out of the, out of our normal grind mentality because the moment we get out of that mental grind for me what it becomes it becomes first year college all day long for yeah. me <laughs> and, and yeah i i have no problem exposing myself to you and and, and those that listen um I went from a very regimented uh, lifestyle with uh, with my family and um, the schools that I went to, which were uh, Catholic, uh, Catholic upbringing, Catholic parochial schools, shall we say, and everything's heavily regimented and and a little bit more so than than some might even assume. And then when you get into college and it's you know vita loca, you know. Go to class if you want to go. We'd love for you to show up if you can, but if you don't, no big deal, right? Just uncork it. Oh, geez. Like the freedom to, to just wander and ponder was like, oh my God, this is like Fantasy Island. Are you kidding me? <laughs> and, and, you know, mm-hmm. quick, quickly that comes to an end. <laughs> and and for, for many of my friends and, and teammates, in college it came to a crashing end um but it was something that really really woke us up that i can't have too much freedom i can't have just Mm -hmm. too much time and what i found in my life uh is that that like you i need multiple career things I, i i need multiple things or i get bored too easy so so i need i'm a project guy i like projects uh, I, yeah, I don't know if you're the same, but but that's what I find works best. For no, me. I I definitely I, I definitely like projects as well. Um, I think my girlfriend knows me, and I think I know myself a lot as a schemer, where I I have an idea, and I think I inherited this from my dad, where he he guesses in he, in his head this idea that he has of what he might want to do, this like grand scale thing. Oh, I'll I'll get this stuff. And because I get this stuff, I'll go on this hike and it'll be a big hike. It'll be a fun project to plan, but it never pans out, which is why I, I liked having the work as a teacher because you were accountable to be in a certain place at a certain time. And the work was tangible and you were, you were on hand and on deck with the kids. But at the end of the day, when the shift was called and you kind of clocked out, you could, you could definitively say, okay, that's over which I, I appreciated the the scheduling and the segmentation that that provided uh, um, that, that provided my, my day-to-day routine where, you know, I wake up and say, okay, I got to get my, I got to get my, myself moving because I have to be at work at 
this hour and which means I gotta I gotta do my training and then I go gotta go take into account how long it's gonna take me to commute there get back and then do whatever core work and routine I have and then oh maybe I planned uh, a dinner with a friend or something like that and I want to get to that dinner with a friend so I have to be efficient and I think I think that's probably the bigger thing that I'm starting to notice now is uh, just the little things that you would plan to break up the the day for example you know you wake up you have your breakfast and you know for most pro cyclists you know the the riding is your job full-time and so you kind of that is the the shift so to speak that you're kind of scheduling everything around but you know you you say okay I'll go on my ride maybe I'll meet up with this person afterwards to grab some dinner or some food and maybe oh they'll come back we'll watch a movie or something like that but again in the wake of social distancing now you don't have that kind of okay I have this one fun social interaction or group get together to look forward to so I should try and make it feel like a reward by getting all this other work done you don't have that kind of so on so to speak relief where there's that that break period the whole day supposedly is just a work from home period so i think that's without those little segmentations in your day like you were saying it can all just gel together monday is tuesday is wednesday so on and so forth where every day just feels exactly the same so so in my little brain what you're basically proving to me is that you are the consummate teacher because what you're basically saying to me in my little head is, um, yeah, without recess, this all sucks. <laughs> without, without the ability to take a break yeah. and go for recess, it's hard to function. And, you know, I, mm-hmm. I'll, tell you, I'll tell you something stupid, you know, um, and, and you might think I'm completely off my, my tree as I say this to you going in a completely different direction. But um, when I'm not working with athletes such as yourself or, or in teams uh, like the one that you're a part of with, with Wildlife Generation, I, I work with athletes who are, are older than you and, and even younger than you. And one of the things that really baffles me is how a lot of families and parents are choosing to take their kids out of, of gym or the arts that instead they'd rather have them take an extra math class or reading class or whatever it may be. Yeah. And, and their yeah, kids may be suffering from ADD or ADHD mm-hmm. and they have no clue that by taking their kid out of those two environments, they're absolutely crippling their kid for the rest of the day. And, and when I explain this to parents that have kids in this scenario, it's amazing to me how many will just look at me like I have like a third eye in the middle of my forehead. And, and it's to, to explain to them, you know, your kid who might have ADHD can have skills mm-hmm developed within them to overcome this over time but one of those things that's working against them is that hyperness that activity need i gotta get this out i i i I gotta get out for recess i gotta run around i gotta do something for a little bit or i'm just gonna explode Mm -hmm. and if you keep me in this classroom i'm probably gonna explode and when i explode uh, there's a good chance i'm gonna get in trouble so, so basically, what yeah. you, you're, you're keeping me inside, and basically, you're setting me up to explode. Thanks, mom. Thanks, dad. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so yeah. I mean, I, yeah. You're ruining recess. <laughs> no, I, I agree, and I think I noticed it. For example, uh, a couple weeks ago, when it was really raining here in California, and I mean, most Californians don't really know how to handle the rain. Anyway, um, so especially, you know, little kids who rarely see it, we're, we're forced to stay inside. We can't go outside on the playground, um, during snack time or something or during recess. And so we have to stay inside. And I, I, I still think it's important that these kids, you know, get out and play, but it's funny when you, when you're inside and there aren't as many, you know, games that you can play and you give the kids the freedom to to say oh what do you guys want to do and they they end up just being like we don't know know what we want to do we're bored this that and the other i think it's funny because you know you go to the school setting and 
regardless of whether you have any organized game ready for the recess, after the classes, they just want to be somewhere that they're, they're not having to think. And I honestly think it is the, the fact that they know they have a break coming that acts as the motivation or the kind of the carrot that you can dangle in front of them saying, look, guys, I know that we have you know, just 10 minutes left in this lesson. Can you bear with me? And they say, okay, you know what? Yeah, that's right. And that's, you know, the motivation, they have the reward and they know that it's coming, which is the time that they can just go out and run around in circles and run themselves ragged. And then they can come back and kind of reset. And they know that their life, they know that they have that kind of segmentation and that that is what gives kind of meaning to the day because like, you said if they are just cooped up inside they become depressed or they become hyperactive and they're not focusing on the the lesson anyway that you replace being outside with or conversely if they're just outside all day and you don't have any kind of structure at all then they'll end up getting bored and hyperactive anyway because there's the balance you know you have the the yin and the yang here is that you know you you need one to appreciate the other and that's actually that in large part that's how i approached cycling when i was in college and i discovered that my passion in life at the moment was was cycling and that you know school i felt like was a drag up until i decided to treat school like it was a break from cycling and the rigor and dedication and exhaustion therein and then vice versa cycling was the break from school so it wasn't like I was I was waiting for cycling to be the escape from school I was was treating cycling as a break from school and then school was the time when I could sit down and actually try and recover physically and I think kids inherently approach it like this where they go outside and they run around but then they come back in and hopefully the teacher has a fun lesson plan where the kid now understands okay I just ran around I had some play time but now we're going to do this cool thing in class and you know maybe they're not thinking it but they will learn something if the if it's a good teacher and then you know they'll go out to their other recess and then you you keep the back and forth of keeping the kid engaged for the segments of the day but then rewarding them with time to play yeah, it's 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 kind of crazy to to think about it when when you when you really map it on out. You're you're trying to take a kid who we know most kids have a hard time staying focused as it is, and we're going to put them into a box, and then we're going to punish them every time they bounce around inside that box. But if you take the average adult, the average college student, and put them in the same kind of box several things are going to happen. A, the box is going to explode. B, productivity yeah. is going to go down. And C, there's a good chance that someone's going to end up at human resources complaining about the person who keeps jamming them in the box. And, and it's like, I, 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 don't, I, I don't really understand how, how you know, what we're creating for kids is going to replicate in, in value um, or in actuality or practicality when we send them out into the real world, you know, um, it, it's almost like I, I've become more and more of a fan over the years of these schools that are very much project based where they're forcing kids to work with each other. Mm-hmm. Because at any given moment, you, you know, this, like you, you could be left alone with the guys, um, during a meeting and you know, what's going to happen 32 mm-hmm. seconds after they're done going to the bathroom, they're all on the phone. Right. There's all this individual time that we are, are absorbed in now. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder if schools and, and, and programs that are developing, you know, the young student of tomorrow, I, I wonder how much time they're actually spending doing group work because of the fact there's so much homework for these kids to do. And there's so much curriculum to get through. I wonder if they actually have the time to give kids the time to partake in group work because yeah. that I see too is I, I, I hear it again and again um, in the workforce where there, there's at times um, the generation having a hard time working with the older generation. And, and I don't know what the reasoning is for that, but 
I wonder if it comes back to, is there enough time doing group work work? I don't know. I, I think based on my experience, I don't know if it's necessarily that it's a lack of group work, although it could easily be, I haven't, I, as a substitute, I don't work long-term in any one particular school to actually make a judgment call to one end or the other with that. But based on my observations with how kids are learning these days, I can say that it's definitely a little less social. And that's just because in the districts that I've worked in, which are fairly well-funded districts, all of these kids, grades, first, second, third, up until, you know, you name it, you know, sixth grade, the highest grade that I've taught, they all have school provided iPads, which is, I think, you know, on a technological level, it's fantastic. I think having an iPad is a really great resource, you know, and it allows a kid access to the internet with uh, functions for research and all that. And I think, in some cases, there are apps or lessons that you can download that are, are valuable and actually really great. But what I notice is there is a huge chunk of learning and curriculum that is 100% iPad-based. And there would be days when I would arrive as a substitute. And again, as a substitute, I can't really say, you know, I can't really say, oh, I, I could have been teaching them something else because... I can't just step in and start teaching what the teacher has been doing during this one particular unit because I don't know what's been happening. So maybe this is just because I'm a substitute that I've seen this a lot, but sometimes I'd come in and the lesson plan would just be, okay, these kids are going to go on their iPads and do these activities for this hour long period. And I'm literally sitting in a room just making sure that these kids are doing the activities. And for the most part, it's silent. You know, there's some chatter here and there, but it's not like, it's group work. And I think it's just, you know, I obviously I'm not even that old, but I can still say that this is just diametrically different from what I was used to as a kid. You know, the way that these kids are learning is just so vastly different from what I was used to. And then just light years away from, for example, where my parents were, were at when they were in elementary school and they were learning. I mean, it's just, to me, it's, it's crazy how, how different it is. I mean, again, most of these kids, the workshops and the lessons that they're doing are 100% iPad-based, and that's all that they're working on. Yes. It, it's, it's incredible watching, you know, kids younger than the, the first grader or kindergarten kid grab an iPad, and it seems like within 30 seconds they've already hacked into the system and they're reprogramming <laughs> the, the setup and the user uh, interface so that they can access their games faster <laughs> and get to their little programs quicker. Yeah, me I mean, I, so some of these kids know how to work an iPad better than I do, which is <laughs> I, I've been told by so many people in my you know, parents' generation you know, oh, can you help me with this in, on the computer? Like, shouldn't you know about this? I'm like, I, I studied English. Like, what the the default is that if you're younger, you you should know how everything works. But it's just, it's funny because these kids understand technology and are tech literate in a way that I don't think anyone will be. You know, in in my generation, for example, unless they've actively studied it. I mean, these kids are growing up with computers around them and with the internet just active everywhere. It's everywhere. So, so do, do you think, Sam, that it's also maybe the fact that, that kids are being introduced to the computers and technology so early that it just seems less intimidating to them? Do you think that could be part of it as well? I definitely think it's, I think it's, it's not that it's a matter of intimidation. I think it's just a matter of literacy in that you can teach technology and uh, computer literacy in a similar way that you can to language in that young kids and young children are the biologically predisposed to have language learning capacity. That is, and that is an innately inborn, that is an inborn part of their, their, 
genetic makeup and the makeup of any child's brain is that they can learn language and which is why you hear constantly you know all you need to do to get a kid to learn a second language is just sit them in front of a radio a tv show or just speak to them in a second language and they'll pick it up and that's all you need to do it's not like when you reach a certain age uh, you need to start learning a formal function or a formal schematic to understand it. You will just automatically know it. And I think that's the difference is the earlier that you, you introduce technology to children, the earlier they understand how to navigate it and how to understand it, much like they would a language that they were introduced to. For example, I mean, I'm sure it's like if my parents who have known computers to some degree or another for longer than I have collectively still struggle with them to on a technological basis uh, because they didn't learn it from a young age. So their tech literacy, even though collectively they've been exposed to it uh, longer than I have is still, I think, lower. For example, you see, and I think for you example, as a child of immigrants, I remember you saying you have no, for example, accent about you that would give away that you you are a child of immigrants because you were assimilated linguistically into the culture at a very early age and you were able to pick it up very quickly. And for But for uh, a man or a woman or parents who travel from their home country at the age of 30, maybe they're fluent in the language because they've studied it formally, but they still have, for example, an accent about them that distinguishes them from a native born speaker. And I think that's, you know, the analogy that I get with technology is these kids are, are tech literate in a way that, you know, I'm not, or that my parents aren't because they're learning it at such a young age. So they just, they understand it on an innate level, not necessarily on just like I, I studied it, therefore I can comprehensively get it, but they just understand it because they, they've been exposed to it. It's amazing what you say, right? Because it's it's so funny. Like you're so right. What you get exposed to at a young a young age, um, you can assimilate it so so much easier with the the environment around you being supportive of either here nor there. Like I, I look at my parents, and it's funny as they get around more ethnic people. I hear their dialects come out. I hear their accents come out. I see their mannerisms more. Mm-hmm. Whereas with me, it, it, it happens, uh, I guess, only once I, I'm submerged within that culture. And then when I ex- come out of it, all my friends and family over here, they they just love to piss their pants laughing at me. So like for me, when I go back home to Canada, <laughs> I spend time with all of my, my Italian and, and, and Maltese relatives, I come back with like, two or three accents on the go and, and people here just mm-hmm. laugh at me because my hands are moving faster than ever before when I'm speaking and I can't help but go, no mm-hmm. way, eh? Really, eh? Oh my God, eh? Did you see what happened on TV last night? Eh? Like, I can't, I can't stop saying the A's like, you know, so, so the joke in my family is there, you know, you'll never see a Canadian Italian ever win on, on wheel of fortune because we'll blow all of our money on vowels. It's just it's pathetic. It's pathetic. So, so switching gears here on you, right? Um, you and, and your girlfriend uh, are, are on a really cool track here to, to do something pretty great during this downtime of sport. And, mm-hmm. and I think you know where I'm going with this. Uh, you, you guys are looking mm-hmm. something together with a, a product as well as athletes that could be looking to do a little bit more in our communities. And I think you're on to something really big here. Can, can you tell us a little bit more about the initiative that you guys are, are taking on right now? Well, my girlfriend, who's the one spearheading the initiative, really, I haven't, I haven't done anything um, but try to, spread the word as best I can when she, when she actually gets the, the final information and bits and bobs together to actually get the ball rolling. But she, Jess, my girlfriend works um, not only as uh, a contracted privateer, so to speak, uh, rider, 
um, in the gravel scene. She retired from road cycling um, after racing for Hoggins Firm and Supermint for three years and, or I guess it was four years, four seasons. And then prior to that, she was racing for 2016, which is now 2020. Um, after retiring, she's now working as a contracted gravel rider, but throughout that entire period, she has worked, um, in the chef world, uh, as a private caterer, um, and also an events caterer. So she's worked with a lot of local companies within, uh, North County, San Diego, as well as catering private cycling camps for various clients she has picked up through, uh, cycling, you know, just coming to know a bunch of people who have found out that she's a cook and asked her, Hey, I, you know, we want someone to cater this, this cycling camp that we're hosting for a bunch of our friends. Do you want to do it? So she had a lot of experience in that, um, and has therefore been exposed, uh, to a lot of the chef world, uh, which included, um, the nonprofit chef cycle, no kid hungry, um, which helps partner, uh, celebrity chefs, who have used cycling as um, their exercise outlet um, to promote uh, raising awareness for um, childhood hunger. And uh, they've tried to help use their platforms to raise awareness um, and raise money and gain donations. So her idea in this time when a lot of athletes are probably feeling a void just because here we have people who have found their callings and livelihoods and competition uh, and uh, completing these challenges or races. The platform to promote their brands or their own charitable passions have up and vanished. Uh, and now it's, you know, I'm imagining that a lot of athletes are having the same idea in their own heads. You know, what what is the point of what I do if what I do is no longer doable to, to a degree. If the races aren't there and I'm a racer, what am I? And so she's, she's attempting to galvanize um, a bunch of her pro athlete uh, friends that she's made over the years uh, by spearheading a food drop program, coordinating with local food bank and food donation sites across the country. Um, so her plan is to contact a bunch of her friends across the country. And she has contacts ranging from Vermont, uh, Connecticut, and other states in New England, uh, places in the Mid-Atlantic, such as Virginia, and then in the South, Georgia and Florida. And then she has people all the way through Ohio, Texas, Colorado, Montana, uh, up in Wa Oregon and Washington. I mean, she knows people everywhere in the country. And so her idea is to contact each and every one of them, asking them if they would be interested in promoting on their own social media channels, uh, places where uh, they can coordinate a safe and effective food drop that adheres to the current uh, health policy standards in the wake of the pandemic. Um, because right now, not only have people been affected adversely by losing their jobs uh, through businesses closing and shops or restaurants shuttering their doors, um, to adhere to the necessary stay at home protocols to alleviate the spread of the disease. But schools, since they're no longer in session, kids who rely on meal programs that are issued through those schools no longer are getting the breakfasts, the lunches, or sometimes even the dinners that those institutions provide. So people are no longer able to access the same amount of food as they had prior to these shutdowns. So she wants to make sure that everyone still has access to food um, and also that athletes are able to still use the platforms that they have accrued through competition in meaningful and effective and impactful ways during this, this really trying time. Wow. That, I mean, give us the name again for, for the, this endeavor. Is No Kid Hungry? Is, is that the name of the endeavor that we're looking at? So uh, I think Jess will help or will try to coordinate perhaps with No Kid Hungry again. She's still sorting out the details and what the actual health safety standards she would have to adhere to gotcha. for 
and the the friends that she's asking to participate and would have to adhere to and she's contacting local food banks in certain areas to see what the actual standards are but she works uh in conjunction with a a nonprofit organization called Chef Cycle slash No Kid Hungry Love it. um and I think Chef Cycle and No Kid Hungry are technically two separate entities but Chef Cycle works uh, for the sole purpose of raising money for No Kid Hungry. So in general, people just say the two com- companies uh, or the two nonprofits together. I love it. I love it. That, that was such a great explanation uh, of it too. So thank you for making that so clear. If people want to donate money, let's just say they didn't have the time or they didn't, they're scared to get on out there with you know the world being what it is right now. Could people donate mm-hmm money to either of these two causes mm-hmm. if, if if so how would that work what, what could they do i think well i know that no kid hungry um there is a donation link if you just google no kid hungry or you go to nokidhungry.org um there is a donation button right there on the 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 front of the home page of the screen uh so i mean it's it's impossible to miss so if you if you want to contribute in a meaningful way to to that you can go to nokidhungry.org and donate and they even have a tab available right now specifically saying uh how to take action to help hungry kids in the wake of the coronavirus and that is at the top of the page but if you are interested in donating um you can look to nokidhungry.org and i believe jess might even be making her own personalized link uh, that she might be sharing later. But again, details need to be sorted out. But for right now, there's nothing holding you back. If you want to donate, you can go to nokidhungry.org. I love it. I love it. I'm looking at this as, as we're talking right now, and you're right. Like It's, it, it's idiot-proof once you get on nokidhungry.com. Uh, I, I love it. I love it. Nokidhungry.org <laughs> yeah. no is, is the actual site. So this is perfect, perfect. So... Let, let, let me let me change gears and and we're gonna throw a U-turn here in a completely different direction. Um, and, and by the way, it's so awesome hearing you describe your passion working with kids and your passion for wanting to help others. Like, I, I just love I love people like yourself who who think past themselves. And and it, it's it's weird, Sam. Hearing you talk, I have to say this to you. It's it's like you're one of those people that has an, an old soul, like that. Like you, you you talk about. <laughs> I've been told that. I've been I've been told I am a forty year old man trapped in a twenty four year old's body. Yes. I go to bed at eight o'clock at night. <laughs> wake up. I like I like my food soft and mushy. Yes, yes. You, you like to fine dine at Coco's is what you like to yeah. do. Yeah. <laughs> um, the early bird special. The early bird special. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Here's a coupon. Um, I, I, I think it's just so great because at such a young age, you've already entered that legacy phase mentality. And, and it, to me, it, hearing you speak, you're talking about things that, that most people don't even start venturing into until they're much, much, much older in life and they're having that thought of, you know, when I kick the bucket, when I leave this planet, when I'm gone, how will I be remembered? What will I have done to help the pass the baton of making things better in life? How, how, how will I pass that baton forward? And, and you're already there. Like you're, 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 you're sprinting towards making things better for people, for kids. And I just love it. I, I think you're just such a phenomenal person to be doing this. Uh, you and your girlfriend. So, so God bless you both on this. Um, Thank you. And, and let, let, me, let me switch gears here, right? So now, now we're, we're, we're going to go to back on the bike here. We're on the bike. I want to pick your brain to think about what goes on in your head as you're getting ready for for competitions and and for races and events i know that's not the case right now it might be a little bit tough to actually do that right now Mm -hmm. but (laughs) come come building up to races are are you able to maybe just like crack open your head a little bit and share with us what goes on upstairs for you when you're preparing for a race weekend 
how do how do how do you prepare mm. mentally for this? Um, mentally, I, I know that in training, I do a lot of visualization, and I think not only is it for the the preparation side of it, um, you know, being able to visualize yourself in, for example, a winning move and how you would win a race, or pretending like on an interval you you put in a race winning attack i think that's not only good physical preparation and mental preparation for when that situation arrives that you're ready to do it i also just think it's it's good fun you know i go out and i train by myself and my coach has asked me to do two minute intervals up a steep hill and i have to do eight of them it's kind of mind numbing to approach it from a, the perspective of, oh, okay, you know, I just got to go and bang out these two minute intervals. You know, I do the first two minute intervals and guess what? How long is the second one? It's also two minutes. And I think, you know, rhythmically that can get monotonous and lead to a bit of burnout. So I've always tried to train myself when, and I kind of look like a psycho when I do this, when I'm training is, during those intervals, for example, like a two minute interval where you don't necessarily have to be looking down and measuring your power the same way that you would be during a, say, a 20 minute interval, where a two minute interval, you can just kind of go attack out of style and just put out the, you know, the watts that'll maintain your forward motion on a steep hill. And that'll get you through the interval. I just, I pretend like I'm following a move, which inevitably means on the hill, like I'm looking over my shoulder at no one, but I'm pretending like I'm looking over my shoulder. Oh, and someone's flying by me in a race and they've attacked and I have to follow that attack. So I get out of saddle, I drop the gear, a couple cogs, and then I, I, I put in my dig, so to speak, to follow that move in air quotes. And you know, that, that gets me through the interval. So a lot of visualization bordering on, you know, psychotic uh, hallucination, I guess you'd say, you know, it goes into the mental side of preparation, just, you know, putting myself in a position, for example, at the end of a workout in those last couple of intervals, when I'm truly whacked and I'm really tired, like I still want to pretend like someone is attacking and it's not like I have a choice in how hard I go. I go as hard as I need to in order to follow that wheel. And so not only does that get me through the workout, I think a little a little easier because, you know, I, I end up more entertained throughout the workout, but it also, when it comes to race day, I can go back subconsciously and say to myself, you know, I've been in this situation before where I, I've visualized this person coming around me and I'm super tired, but I've still managed to hold off, you know, the, the fatigue and put out good, good amount of power to keep up with them. Again, them is in quotes, because in training, I'm, I'm just by myself on a hill, but I love it. I think, yeah. And I think that's, that's the big thing is a lot of visualization goes into it. But beyond that, I, I think, and that that's on a personal side, personal side of it, you know, what I personally do. But I think the other thing I do is I try to just, I remember that there are some things that you can't really control in a race. Um, and mentally you have to get ready for that. For example, you can have the best prep you ever had in your life and you can go into a race feeling the fittest you've ever felt. But then for some reason, when it comes time to race, like you just don't feel good or you get a flat or some, something else, how you crash or something like that, like something completely out of your control just upends the visualization that you had. You know, you have to temper the visualization that you have uh, when you're training with the realities that that not, might not come to fruition. So to me, I know I've heard people talk about visualizing winning a race. I don't actually, I, I think mentally, I don't actually ever visualize myself winning a race. I visualize myself getting into the position to win a race. Like I don't, because at the end of the day, like the winning the race part, sometimes that, that boils down to pure luck of it you know, whether, whether you, you, you get a flat or you crash in the last K or something like that, but it's getting into that winning move, for example, that I think is the hardest part is being judicious and cautious, but also aggressive at the same time, such that you end up in a position where you can win the race. Um, and at the end of the day, sometimes circumstances don't allow you to win the race. You get a flat, you crash, 
you slide out because you hit a wet patch or something like that that you couldn't see something some freak accident and you just kind of have to be able to swallow that and know that if you know if not me it could have been someone else and that would have been their day ruined so this it was just you know my turn I, so to speak right I, I, I gotta tell you I, you had me at hello um, everything you're saying is just top-notch bang on and, and, and one of the things that I, I just absolutely love when you're describing visualization is that that realistic tone that realistic scenario that you're creating when when you're doing the do and what I specifically mean by this is I, I think about a year ago I had asked the guys in the team you know how many of you take the time to visualize something bad happening and there was a couple of hands that went up and I bring this up with, with teams and coaches that, that I, I, I work with. And, and at times you can see coaches and directors in the back of the room just shudder and, and cringe going like, what the hell is he talking about here? Where is this going? Right? I don't want these guys visualizing losing or, you know, falling yeah. off. But I think it's so important because, you know, mm-hmm. one of the things that, that we really want to make sure that we're doing is being able to respond to whatever's thrown at yeah. us and, and the power of, of taking the time to create a scenario like the one that you're creating where it's a realistic situation where let's just be honest, you know, something hits the fan. How do I deal with it? Well, rather than wasting time, wasting energy, uh, allowing ourselves to get overly distracted, th- this, this is nothing new. This is just an SOP, a standard operating procedure that I now engage and, and not only do I engage it, but I engage it in a way which is going to help me succeed in the moment. So it's not just, Oh God, something bad has gone on, gone down. It's all falling apart. What do I do? Hit the red panic button. It's to say to ourselves, you know what? I've been here before. I, I, I know what we mm-hmm. need to do. And because I've been here and done that before, I'm, I'm pressing the green button. I'm just going for it because I know exactly where I'm at right now. And I, I've, I've seen this before. I don't need to waste my time or energy processing the situation. I see what's in front of me. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so huge. I, I think that is probably one of the quintessential elements in an elite athlete's ability to differentiate themselves and separate themselves from being good and being great. And, and, and the reason I say yeah. that, in any sport, the difference between you know, the, the victor and, and the loser is, is time and space. The moment that one person yeah. can inflict as much uh, force onto their opponent where they take away time to react and space in which to react within, that's usually the person who's going to be the victor, right? Like mm-hmm. we, we never see teams become victorious that say, okay, let's just hang back and do nothing. Let, let, let's try and take away time and space and be aggressive so that we can take a situation that might take the average athlete, let's say it takes them five seconds to figure out a situation and respond. How can we now make that a three-second situation? And the moment that we can do that, that's when we cause our opponent to make mistakes. And, and if we can have them make more mistakes than us, there's a good chance that uh, good things are going to happen for us. And, and, and mm-hmm. that's all part of the process that, that I see being effective. How long, how long have you been imploring this? How long have you been doing this since, since being a kid? I've been doing this for a while, I think. Um, again, it was more, it wasn't really as any kind of real means of like wholehearted race prep in, in the sense of like, okay, I'm visualizing this race because I, I want to I win this race. It was more as a means of entertaining myself during intervals. So when I was living in LA, for example, my coach, you know, on any given day, we would have, efforts where I'd go out 
uh, on, say, any of the canyon climbs off of PCH. So all of those climbs are, say, 35, 45 minutes long, give or take. And so he would just say, ride the, ride the, the climb tempo, but throw in, you know, four to six attacks during your tempo effort when you're riding, say, at 90%, where you just attack really hard and then settle back into your 90% as kind of a race simulation. So in order to do that, I don't want to just be attacking for the sake of attacking. I want to pretend like I'm having to follow someone, not only as motivation to get me out of the saddle, but also just as, you know, to keep it kind of fun yeah. and keep my mind engaged. So I pretend like I'm constantly being chased by someone or someone's constantly attacking me or there's something, something on the line, just kind of create a narrative to the or the interval you know, the 30 minutes that it lasts such that it's a little more engaging just instead of me going, okay, here's, you know, 35 minute climb. I'll do an attack every, if I need to do four to six, I'll do an attack every five minutes so that I get five in after 25 minutes, you know, some, not to approach it mechanically like that, but, you know, sometimes I'd, I'd attack myself 10 minutes into the effort and then literally, you know, I'd sit down and I'd be like, oh gosh, another guy goes up the road and I attack myself 10 seconds later because I feel like that's more reminiscent of real life race simulation than just trying to approach training methodically. And so lately within the last couple of years, I've tried to incorporate that kind of training into the methodical part of it, which is the, okay, go out and do eight by two minutes. There's no race where you're going to be doing two minute efforts where you have a two minute recovery but within that two minute effort, you got to pretend like, okay, this is in the middle of the race. How would the race react? How would, how would it happen? Make it hard, but make it, make it similar to a race because that's how you're going to benefit from the training at the end of the day. Like you trained a race. Right. Right. And, but I, I think what makes you successful too is when those training scenarios can be as realistic as possible. Right. And, oh, and completely. Yeah. And you're, you're, you're doing, you're doing that times 10, in my opinion, because you're creating a scenario that's going to be one, which is not only physically and emotionally challenging, but mentally, it's not going to be distracting for you mm -hmm. out there doing the do, you know, um, mm -hmm. to, to me, it's no different than the elite athlete who says, you know, I always go hard, train hard because that's how I play. And, and you just have that constant on switch and on means this is how I do what I do. But to incorporate that mental visualization side that allows you to not become distracted both mentally and emotionally while you're competing, that's huge. That's huge. Yeah. Because really what you're doing is you're multitasking. This is where the ADD student in you comes into full effect. You're, you're not just listening to what's being said by the teacher, but you're doodling, taking notes, and sending a text at the same time. Because yeah. you're working out, you're pushing your body physically, you're training for a specific scenario, you're now incorporating when to use that scenario, you're now incorporating when to train, how to train, when to use it, and what that situation is going to look like, smell like, feel like, and taste like. So that mm -hmm. come race time, when that scenario pops up, I don't need to take 20 seconds to figure out each one of those senses and, and, and match it with, is this what I know it to be? And if it is great, and if not, now what do I do to recalibrate all that? You're just jumping into the moment. Mm -hmm. There's no figuring it out. You're just jumping. Yeah. And that's what I think is brilliant about what you're doing. This is great. Thank you. So, so before I let I let you go here, um, I want to I want to just let you know, like, you're just so much fun to talk to, <laughs> and and you're definitely definitely one of these guys. Thank that, you. That that I, I could see myself um, in a car ride, and and if I blinked more than twice, we'd start in, in San Diego, and we'd be like in Arizona, and I wouldn't even know how that time went by. <laughs> <laughs> Y y well, in the same in the same vein, when when I talk about pretending like I'm riding with people in a race, I I talk to myself a lot by myself. 
<laughs> thing to myself, managed to keep myself pretty entertained. So. <laughs> oh, Sam, you are the best. You are the best. Um, you know, the last thing I, I want to throw on out there is an opportunity for you to kind of maybe share a little bit about. Um, you mentioned earlier to me that your girlfriend started um, uh, an energy bar uh, company mm-hmm. that, that is out there doing really good things. Do you, do you want to spend a few seconds uh, telling our people a little bit about uh, JoJ? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so JoJ Bar, J-O-J-E, it's a combination of the names of the two founders of the company, uh, John, uh, who was Jess's business partner, and Jess herself, JoJ. That was created back in 2011, 2010, 2011, I believe, not in any formal way then, but um, as a favor to one of Jess's friends, Leslie Patterson, who is a three-time Xterra world champion, who had contracted Lyme disease after getting bit by a tick at Moose Man, which is uh, an Xterra event in Vermont, I believe. So after contracting Lyme disease and the complications thereafter, uh, Leslie needed to go on a gluten-free diet. But at the time, again, this was something like 10 years ago, there were no prominent gluten-free options as far as energy bar goes that anyone would want, want to have eaten back then. So the market uh, at that time was really just Cliff Bar and Power Bar, you know, at the most. There wasn't the, the variety that you see nowadays. And so Jess, in her home kitchen, came up with a solution uh, to help Leslie train and be able to eat food that tasted good and that encouraged her to eat. Um, which kept her fueled and kept the training really, uh, really high level. Uh, so she invented the bars in her home kitchen, baked them, cut them up, and gave them to Leslie. And then word got out that she was doing that amongst the the riders in San Diego County and the North County scene that we're a part of here. And they were asking her about it because they'd seen Leslie eating them, and they said, "Hey, can you can I try some of that?" And so she ended up bringing them on some group rides, handing them out. And uh, she ended up finding um, a co-packer later, a couple years down the line, which is the the facility that helps bake and pack your bars in a formal setting to get them to the the shelves uh, of a supermarket. So that's the facility that makes the bars, mixes the mix, bakes them, and then uh, wraps them in the wrapping that you see when you buy them. And so finally, in, after a couple years of, of looking for the packer, finding it, and incorporating formally, um, she and her business partner made the company uh, in 2016 uh, formal. So it became JoJ Bar in 2016, and they've been operating uh, since then out of various local grocery shops um, and supermarket chains in and around San Diego and Southern California, as well as through other large, larger scale operations such as uh, REI um, and thefeed.com and uh, Amazon. Those are all places that you can buy, but they do have a website. You can just log on to jojbar.com and you can become a subscription based order uh, order customer and you can fill out uh, forms that help you choose which flavor you would want want to have right now. Um, but again, uh, right now, part of the part of the issue as a small business is the the kitchen that uh, she's been working out of has been affected by the coronavirus pandemic. So currently they're they have no they're adhering to the standards that Washington is putting in place and they have no facilities operating as of right now so there are no bars baking so you know it's not not a lot of inventory right now to go around um and i know that reis um which are a huge part of uh our business model right now we work closely with the company because uh, rei is a really great company philosophy wise business wise and we we wanted to align ourselves with that um but uh they're also closed so Uh, again, it's, it's a hard time for small businesses through and through. Wow. Well, I, I really hope that things turn around, uh, quick for, for you and and everybody else. Um, but 
I just think you Thank get you. Something, such a great product. And, and I know that the guys in the team uh, love them as well. And, and, and I've, I've had the chance to sample a couple. I, uh, yeah, it's good stuff you're making over there. They are my favorite, favorite bar that I've ever eaten on the bike. And, you know, I eat a lot of, <laughs> I eat a lot of bars and I've eaten a lot of bars. And I think, you know, the bar that, that encouraged that, that you are, are excited to eat is the one that you should be going for. In my opinion, I think that's, that's the key. So true. So true. Well, yeah. buddy, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for, for sharing so much of yourself. I, I can't thank you enough. You, you, you've been awesome. and I really, Thank you so much for having me. Well, listen, I look forward to seeing you soon, my friend. You take care. Be safe. You too. Take care. And, and, yeah, stay safe. <laughs> stay safe in these crazy times. Thank you. All right. Talk to you soon, buddy.